0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro.
1: Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by Revenge of the Nerds aficionado, Coach Trevor Connor. Alright, are you ready? Here's your workout for today. Give me 20 seconds at high anaerobic capacity. Now 10 seconds, recovery at 65%. Then one minute at mid-VO2 max, holding 100 RPM. Now rest one minute. All right, now give me a series of 10 one-minute efforts at 102% of FTP and increasing cadence. But be careful, do these at 99% of FTP and you're working the wrong system. Oh my god, you've screwed up the entire workout. Okay, perhaps that is a bit of an exaggeration. However... The complexity of that routine was probably starting to sound familiar. Complex training prescriptions are becoming increasingly popular. In this episode of Fast Talk, we ask the question, does it really need to be that complex? Today is another summary episode. It's just Coach Connor and I with no guest to keep us in line. We do bring in seven side interviews from people much smarter than us, With their help, we're going to try to make three key points. Number one, human physiology is very complex. Number two, properly executing intervals is very difficult. Number three, the prescription should be simple. Along the way, Trevor will drop his biggest nerd bomb yet, trying to explain how complex the physiology is. We'll use the analogy of riding side by side to explain why prescriptions should be simple. And we'll talk about all the subtle ways that top athletes learn to better execute their workouts. Numbers are important, but there's a lot more to it than that. And if you like a challenge and want a really tough workout, here's one for you. Take a shot of your favorite scotch every time Trevor gushes over PGC-1 Alpha. Make it to the end of the podcast doing that and you're a better athlete than either of us. As I mentioned, there was no guest with us in our studio for this recording, but since this is a summary episode, we pulled a lot of segments from past shows. Our guests this week include legendary mountain bike world champion and a guy who never gets old, Ned Overend. Ned almost sounded scared when he talked with us about the possibility of training with power or heart rate. Yet, despite having almost no metrics in his training life and no structured routine, he's developed a remarkably sophisticated system of training. Next, we'll hear from Husheng Amiri, head coach at the Pacific Cycling Center and past Canadian national team coach. Husheng shared with Trevor his thoughts on complex interval routines. Next, it wouldn't be an episode on interval work without hearing from Dr. Stephen Seiler, top physiologist and researcher in Europe, one of our favorite guests. He's been credited with formalizing the polarized training model. We pulled in a few clips from Dr. Seiler, who shared his thoughts on interval prescription and execution. What about athletes who have grown up with power meters and pre-programmed workouts on their head units? We included an interview here that we haven't used before with 2018 Tour of Utah winner Seth Coos. While he relies heavily on power, it's not as simple as setting a target number before he gets on the bike and sticking to it. Next we grab a clip from Dr. Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen, authors of Training and Racing with a Power Meter, which was updated just this year. The two of them invented probably the most common training zone model in the world. They don't even use the word training zones, but that's another story. They talked with us about the value of zone models, or as they like to call them, levels. Trevor pulled out an old interview with Trek-Segafredo writer Tom Skunch. Like Sep, Tom talks about some of the many decisions that go into effectively executing his interval work. And finally, we hear from... 2017 U.S. National Champ Larry Warboss, who now rides for AG2R Le Mondial. Larry talked with us about the importance of seeing your training sessions in a broader context. Otherwise, you can execute perfectly and still get off track. With that, take that first shot of scotch, because PG1C Alpha, let's make it fast.
2: This episode of Fast Talk is sponsored by WHOOP. This was one of the really interesting things I remember learning about many years ago in one of my physiology classes. I wish I could find the details about this. But one of the things that made German cyclists back in the 80s absolutely dominant was apparently they had the athletes living with a team of doctors and physiologists. And quite literally, they would get up in the morning and go down and get a whole evaluation and then they would be told, here's what you are able to do today. So it's just an assessment of how recovered they are, how Mm -hmm. beat up they are. So they didn't just have a standard training plan that they had to follow no matter what. It was really customized to to where they're at every day. And that gave them an edge. And what's really neat now is essentially with a a product like Whoop, you kind of have that on your wrist. You're going to get up in the morning. It's going to give you an idea of how recovered you are, how good your sleep was. That's going to allow you to adjust your training.
0: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to think about all of the technology that has been reduced and slapped onto your wrist and gives you that feedback immediately, daily, and customized to you as as an athlete, as an individual. This is why I was born 20 years too early.
2: When I When I was in my 20s, I love music. I'd have to carry around these giant things of CDs everywhere that I went (laughs) that would fill half my car. Now I can fit it all on my phone. Same thing, back then you would have had to have a bunch of physiologists in the back of your car. Now you can just carry it on your wrist. Exactly. We've come a long way, Trevor. We we have, and I am so (laughs) old. Whoop is the performance tool that has changed the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. WHOOP tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. WHOOP helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, WHOOP just released the new WHOOP Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The WHOOP Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. WHOOP has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. So two T's, no space. Just go to WHOOP.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use the code Fast Talk at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. Chris is just looking. He's looking at the outline I gave him. Normally, our
0: outline is a page long. This is like, what, four pages long? It is, but we're going to try to get through it. And it's a challenge, but we'll, we're up for challenges. Well,
2: I hope you, our listeners, are ready for this one because this is – you're going to get some true Trevor nerd bombs on this one.
0: Yeah, I'm going to try to limit those, but there will be some. So today's episode is just Trevor and I. You've just got Coach Connor and Chris Case sitting around a table. It's like a fireside chat, you and me. It's another summary episode, but we've been talking about this one for a while and comes back to the types of questions we get yeah the specificity that people seem to want from us and this one this episode's really going to hopefully help our listeners understand that the physiology of the human body is extremely complex but the execution the prescription of what you should do in your training doesn't have to be extremely complex so we're going to try to cover a lot of things in this episode but ultimately, you're going to hear our biased opinion on what really works. And it's going to go back to a lot of the things you've heard us talk about in previous episodes, whether it's with Dr. Seiler's polarized model or things that Sebastian Weber has brought to the program about the give and take between the different types of riders and athletes there are in the world and how you train. And if you train in one way, it might you might sacrifice a little over here and, and so forth, vice versa. So again, this is going to be an episode where not everybody's going to necessarily agree with us. There might be coaches out there that say we're complete ding-dongs.
2: And that's fine. And we're not going to sit here and, and try to argue this is our bias. This yeah. is our opinion.
0: But we, we've never said we are absolutely right. Yeah. But I do think the, the reasoning behind what we're about to say is very sound. And what we're trying to do is actually make things, in a way, simpler for people and also bring out the best in terms of performance. So we've got good intentions. <laughs> we
2: hope. We hope. And what motivated this? I mean, we really do listen to your questions and we try to answer all the questions. We're, we're not always perfect, but we really try. And one of the themes we've really been seeing Lately, that people are struggling with, particularly, we've been getting a lot of questions about zones, and we hope all of you listen to that that episode we did a few months ago about zones. What I have been seeing is people have been oversimplifying the physiology, but then when they talk about their training, they they are making their exercise prescriptions dramatically overcomplex. Right. We want to switch that around, yeah. and I will give the example of my my mentor, who's kind of on the one extreme. He's a three-time national champion. This is Glenn Swan, my my first mentor. Canadian national champion. No, U.S. Oh, is he? Yeah, out of New York State. Okay. He's never done an interval workout in his life. He got his form by – he set up a Tuesday night training race, a Thursday time trial. So there was his high-intensity work on Tuesday, his threshold work on Thursday – and he would do long rides with his friends on the weekend. He got a good exercise prescription mm-hmm. that would fit with, with the sort of a, interval prescriptions we've been talking about, but never did a single interval because sure. well, he hated them.
0: Yeah. It also sounds – not only is that sort of, quote, simple, but it sounds perhaps more fun and appealing because you don't have to go out there and slaughter yourself by yourself right. on a hill and do yeah. repeats or whatever your, your interval of choice is. It's racing. It's with people. and That's what he said. He
2: said, A, I find this more fun said, B, I can never push myself as hard in intervals as I can when I'm racing people. Yeah. So there's a logic to it.
0: Yeah.
2: You may not have heard of Glenn Swan, but I'm certain you've heard of Ned Overend, who's a world champion cyclist and still tears up the local Cat Ones in Durango in his 60s. Decades of success proves he knows a lot about training. But when we interviewed him a few years ago, his approach was to keep it simple.
3: To be honest with you, I'm I'm really just guessing here because I don't train with a heart rate monitor. I have a very unstructured, well, maybe not unstructured is the right word, but it's a low tech hmm. training methodology. <laughs> I am pretty much a perceived effort trainer. So when I go out and uh, do intervals, I'm doing based on my perceived effort over the length of the interval I'm doing. And, uh, and I use group rides and chasing Strava segments, you know, for either a PR or a, a KOM or a, or a high finish on the Strava segment as, as my uh, kind of drive for interval training. And I don't use a, a watt meter or a heart rate monitor.
2: Do you think there is a danger with some of these younger athletes who, who have all these numbers? Um, if they're going out and doing their workouts and, and time trialing, staring at wattage, staring at heart rate, do you think there's a danger in in not learning the feel and, and affecting their performance?
3: Yeah, I, I think that uh, in in the same way that when I'm doing a group ride, it pushes me harder than when I'm doing intervals myself or it pushes me in a different way. And uh, I, I think that when you're in a race, if somebody, especially in a race, if somebody is looking at a, at a watt meter or a heart rate monitor, uh, they're restricting themselves when they may be able to push themselves beyond kind of the numbers they've seen in training to whether it's make a break or, or stay away from somebody, or I think that if they put those kind of uh, parameters on themselves, that, that it may hinder the performance they're capable
2: of. Let's get back to the show and talk about what is complex.
0: The first part of this episode is going to be sort of Trevor. Biggest <laughs> nerd bomb I've ever done. <laughs> well, hopefully it's not that. I'm going to try to keep
2: Trevor Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> hopefully it is going to be the biggest <laughs> nerd bomb I have ever done. This was planned.
0: I was like I didn't sleep last night I was giddy oh boy oh boy I'm in for a challenge because I'm going to try to keep you on track and keep you rolling we got I'm going to put you on the clock how about that instead of instead of one minute I'm gonna I'm gonna be generous you've got five minutes to go through what do we got here 12, 13, maybe 15 different points that you want to make. Hey, it's probably 25 there. Half of them are still in your head.
2: So, so before the timer starts, what we're going to try to do here is show just how remarkably complex the physiology is. So to cover it in five minutes, you have to look at this as every single sentence I say,
0: we could do an episode or two just explaining that one sentence. And in some ways we have. We've done some episodes on some of this stuff. So when we can, we'll try to reference those episodes.
2: Yep. But in the meantime, we're going to take the 10,000-foot view on what's going on. I got the stopwatch. Oh, God. Are okay. you ready? Let's do this. Are you well hydrated? I am well hydrated. High- Hold on. I've
0: got my tea. What kind? Uh, this is a gunpowder. Gunpowder tea. Good and bitter. All right. Well, on your mark, get set,
2: go. Okay. So we are talking about the different ways in which we improve what's going on with your physiology. And let's start really simple. We have those three fiber types, your, your slow twitch, what are called your, your fast twitch 2A, your fast twitch 2B. When we've had Dr. Seiler in here, and we've talked about the three zone model, it has been pointed out that in some ways that zone one is where you really work in the slow twitch. When you move into zone two, that's where you start recruiting those 2A fibers. And once you're into zone three, that's where you're really hitting the two Xs, mm-hmm. um, uh, your, your big anaerobic fibers. And so there is some argument that you just need to kind of target those fibers. So that's a really simple, nice way of looking at the, the physiology. Uh, and we could just leave it there. And, and we've used that sort of very simple way of looking at it to talk about a lot of our episodes. But even that starts to get a little more complex because... When you go out and do a long ride, even your slow twitch muscle fibers will fatigue. And they've shown that you start cycling through muscle fibers. So you could be going out at 150 watts initially just using your slow twitch muscle fibers. But three hours in at right. 150 watts, you're starting to recruit some of those, those anaerobic muscle fibers, some of those 2As and even some of the 2Xs. You also see over time transition in fiber types. The 2As the are the what are called the big imitators because they can either act like a big anaerobic fiber or they can start acting like an oxidative fiber. The other key thing to remember is as you go up in intensity, it's not like all of a sudden now you're only using your, your two Xs. You continue to recruit all your muscle fibers. Mm-hmm. You just recruit more and more as you go up through intensity. What do we have
0: time? You've got three so, minutes oh, left. <laughs> That okay, was, so let's look at was, another thing that you're really
2: trying to train. We've talked a lot about fat and carbohydrate metabolism. You're really trying to affect what fuels you've, you've used. And we've had people like Dr. Hawley on the show have said, if you don't have the carbohydrates, you can't do high intensity. And high intensity work relies on the carbohydrates. But as a cyclist, we really need to rely on fats for fuel because as far as a bike race is concerned, fat is unlimited. Carbohydrates are limited. Mm-hmm. And if you are really using those carbohydrates in a race, you're going to bonk. Fat utilization kind of follows a bell-shaped curve. It has a peak, which is a little bit below, right around threshold, and then it actually starts to decline. I, I have heard physiologists that say that once you're above threshold, you're not burning fat at all. I've heard others that say, no, you continue to burn fat. You're always burning fat. It's just now your, your ratio is completely different. You're burning a, a ton more carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. But the idea here is if you really want to hit burn, improve that fat metabolism, It's not necessarily at the highest intensities. Right. If you want to improve, though, your ability to use carbohydrates for high intensity, you need to do high intensity work. That then gets us into this whole idea of lactate metabolism because you only produce lactate when you're you're burning carbohydrates. And a big part of training with cycling is, is improving your ability to maintain lactate levels. That's not just reducing how much lactate you produce, but actually improving how much you clear. Mm-hmm. Even when you're sitting on the couch, you are producing lactate, right. you're just clearing it as quickly as you're producing it. Mm-hmm. That's why you can have a lactate steady state at many different intensities, as long as it's holding steady. And I think we did an episode on this. We, we talked with Dr. Nugo San Milan about this, but there's a lot of research showing that actually. The optimal point of clearance when your body is, be, you know, really, really clearing that lactate and, and improving that system is at 95% of your lactate threshold. So it's sub-threshold of what people right. think of as sweet spot work. Yep. And that's why, you know, for time trialers, training that lactate clearance is critical. If you're doing a 40K TT, you can't build up lactate. And that's why when we had Sebastian Weber in here talking about how do you train a time trialist, he was saying, Sub threshold, high, low cadence work. And we had a lot of people got kind of upset by that. Cause they're like, but that sweet spot, that's not threshold. It doesn't fit, but you have to look at what are the different systems we're trying to, to train. And right now we're talking about that lactate clearance. Next, we can talk about efficiency versus VO2 max. And you got Chris's,
0: 20 seconds left. I, I have
2: failed miserably. <laughs> we haven't hit the good stuff yet. Yeah. I'm trying. I apologize. So we won't even touch on this one, but we could talk about improving efficiency versus VO2 max. Which it is says
0: here, let's not even go there. Yeah,
2: because it's controversial. Mm-hmm. There was one fascinating five-year study.
0: Everybody, do you hear that? Yeah, you're yeah. done. I miss my? Cut minutes. you off. No, I'm, you're
2: not. I'm going. <laughs> We're continuing. There was a five-year study that showed that some cyclists improved in efficiency over time. Some improved in VO2 max, but you never saw somebody improving right, both. Right, in
0: both. Yep.
2: Which was fascinating. We will save that for another conversation. That
0: was a conversation or a topic that came up in conversation with uh, Joe Friel, if I'm not mistaken, when it came to runners. Yeah, Frank we Schwer, did talk yeah, about yeah, that.
2: Yep. Yeah. You've heard us talk a lot about PGC one alpha. There are a ton of different pathways that affect our training, affect our, our body's ability to produce work both aerobically and anaerobically. We didn't want to talk about all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm a geek, but we, we know our limits for the show. But you've heard us continuously talk about this PGC1-alpha pathway because— You have a tattoo of that on, you, on your forearm, don't you? Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably should get it. <laughs> we picked that pathway because it's kind of this funnel. And it's been shown that it's the master regulator of endurance adaptations. And everything kind of goes through this pathway. So and we're going to talk more about this in a minute. But in some ways, you know, we talk about what intensities should be going at. There is a bit of an argument of, well, does it really matter? Because it's all actually hitting the same pathway. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. My time is out. Last thing that you have to look at when you're talking about what you're doing with your training is, autonomic stress and reactive oxygen species. I actually just wrote an article about this, and we should probably do an episode on this. But when you do a lot of aerobic work, especially when you do high-intensity, very fatiguing work, you produce a lot of of ROS, reactive oxygen Mm -hmm. species. And it has this interesting kind of bell-shaped curve to it, or or we were talking before, trying not to throw too many words out there, but hormesis, in that if you produce a certain amount of ROS, it actually promotes adaptations. It's You want to produce a certain amount. It's going to help your training. You produce too much and it actually shuts down your immune system and your body doesn't adapt and you start pushing towards burnout. Right. So that's another thing you have to look at is how much ROS am I producing. There's yeah. a
0: lot of balancing acts taking place in what we've talked about and that one in particular with the ROS.
2: Right. And the reason I just... Try to get all that into five minutes and explain all that and probably confuse everybody, including myself and Chris, (laughs) is to get across this idea that the physiology is remarkably complex. And as you said, it's a balancing act. All these different things are influenced differently by our training. And so really focusing on one might actually have a negative effect on one of the others. You have to look at, am I really trying to improve my fat metabolism? Am I trying to improve lactate clearance? Am I trying to, am I building too much raw? So you have to look at all these things as this giant milieu that doesn't quite fit together. And where we are heading with this is we got a lot of emails where people are talking about, well, I was just above or just a little below my VO2 max or my lactate threshold. So I was in this zone. Therefore, I was training this system. And that's just not the way the body works. It's not this case of, I am now in my VO2 max zone, so I am just training VO2 max. Right, right. Or I am, you know, in my threshold zone, so I'm just training my
0: threshold. They're not these distinct silos. Right. Everything's a blend. I brought
2: up the PGC-1 alpha saying everything kind of funnels through there because in some ways all training produces some some similar gains. Mm-hmm. There used to be this old belief that there was a central conditioning which you influenced when you went out and did long and slow, and then there was peripheral conditioning. And that's kind of been tossed out, and, and part of that was the discovery of this PGC-1 alpha pathway. They said, actually, it all just goes through the same funnel. So do threshold work, do sprint work. And you know, they even did studies on sprints, and this was more in, in untrained individuals, but showed, hey, they went out and did sprints, and their endurance improved. So it's just not that simple. It's not, I'm in my threshold zone, therefore I'm doing threshold training. If you are in your threshold zone, that whole giant physiological soup that I just gave you, it's all being influenced. And it's all being influenced in different ways. Mm-hmm. And yes, when you're in that threshold zone, that's when your lactate clearance system is a little more maximal. That's when you're really stressing that that ability to use fats. That's when you're pushing some of those fast twitch muscle fibers to work more aerobically. So it is optimal for improving your threshold, but it's not a simple process that's going on.
0: Yep. Let's put all of that complexity behind us f- for now. And because of that complexity of the human body and the physiology, it doesn't it mean that your prescription of what you're doing should actually be simple?
2: Yeah, you would think when I'm explaining all that complexity, you would just kind of throw your hands up in the air and go, "This is so ridiculously complex. I have no idea how to train." And what we want to get at with the rest of this podcast is now that you understand the physiology is remarkably complex, don't simplify it. Don't simplify it down to zones and and this zone is just training this system. What's very counterintuitive is, and again, this is where we're getting into our bias. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Um, I'm going to try to explain how this, this complexity actually leads to. I think the best training is a very simple exercise prescription.
4: And
0: mm-hmm.
2: if you remember, we had Dr. Seiler on the show who, who basically said the same thing. Yeah.
0: And in your opinion, there's a keystone here. There's this PGC-1-alpha pathway. Right. And because you can come at it from all these different directions and, and affect it in different ways, that is central to what you're about yeah. to get into.
2: So let's take that whole physiological milieu that we just talked about, throw most of it out. We'll cover... Um, in more detail, this whole reactive oxygen species and the, the training at 95% for better lactate clearance. Hopefully we'll touch on that in future shows. Sure. Let's just kind of zero in on this PGC-1 alpha. So I called it the funnel. Mm-hmm. Basically it is the master regulator of all endurance work. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to go too much into the details of it, but there are two great reviews out there that really explain this by by two titans in, in exercise physiology. Um, one was written by Dr. Larson that was in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports, uh, written in 2010. And it's a great review where he talks about the importance of this PGC1-alpha pathway and then how to influence it. And mm-hmm. we'll, we'll actually go a little more into detail about what he says in his study. The other one was written by Drs. Kofi and Dr. John Holly, who've had had on the show in the past. And it's again a review that was written in 2007. Mm -hmm. And he really details this, the the importance of this PGC1 alpha pathway and puts it up against the the pathway that's really important for strength athletes who are looking for hypertrophy. That's a different pathway. And he does show that the the pathway, PGC1 alpha pathway for endurance training, actually mutes the other one, which Hmm. is why if you go out and do a lot of endurance work, you're never going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: Mm -hmm. I can attest to that.
2: Going back to this pathway, so I've said it's kind of the master regulator. Everything funnels through it. There is a little bit of truth to saying, who cares what you do? Go do sprint work. Go do Tabatas. Go do long, slow. It's all going to promote PGC1, this pathway. So who cares? Do whatever you want to do. At least that's what it sounds like we're saying. Sure. It's, it's not quite that simple. Physiology is never quite that simple. But I'm still going to use this pathway to explain why the training is actually simple. In the, the review by Larson, he shows that there's actually four pathways that stimulate PGC1-alpha. So the first one is mechanical stretch or muscle tension, mm-hmm. which when you're riding the bike, that's what you're doing. Yep. second one is an increase in ROS. So, that's why I was saying before the, the you, you're looking for that hormesis, that optimal release of ROS, because if you get enough, it's going to promote pgc one right. alpha You do too much, it shuts the system down.
0: Yep. Think Goldilocks. Right. Not too much, not too little. Yep. Just not too hot, not too cold. I don't know. Is that Goldilocks, right? No, it's Goldilocks. Okay. And Good. bed.
2: <laughs> so, recovery, you're looking for that bed, not too hard, not yeah, too yeah, soft? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the other two pathways are the ones that, that we I really want to hit on for a second. One is an increase in muscle calcium concentrations. Ooh. So when you use your muscles, basically, if you if you remember your your high school physiology, calcium's released into the cytosol. That's what causes the muscles to contract and then it's sucked back up. And that keeps happening every single time your muscle contracts. Mm-hmm. That does break down over time. And you're sensitive to this, and that then promotes this PGC-1 alpha. The other pathway is the AMPK pathway, and that pathway is promoted by when you you see a drop in the muscle store of ATP mm. and an increase in the muscle store of ADP. Mm-hmm. That first one, that calcium concentration pathway, really just takes lots of time at the bike, doesn't take intensity. There's your long, slow There's distance. Your, yep. Yep that other pathway, the AMPK, you need to hit the muscles hard. You need to do big anaerobic depleting work. So this is talking about clearing out that watt prime that we've talked about in previous episodes. You can do that through sprints. You can do that through Tabatas. You just have to find the, the right execution so that you just beat up those muscles and there's no anaerobic stores left in your system. Larson goes on in his, his review to say that, A, the, these two pathways affect PGC-1 alphas differently. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the effects from the, the, the calcium pathway are much slower, but don't seem to have as much of a limit, where the effects from the AMPK are very rapid, but do seem to plateau quite quickly, which is mm-hmm. consistent with what we were always saying, that high-intensity work, absolutely you improve quickly, but then you plateau, yep. where you need much more time with the endurance. But the other thing that he showed is that they're additive, that these different ways of influencing uh, PGC1 alpha add to one another. So if you just only did the one, the long, slow distance hitting that calcium, you'll get so far. Sure. not far enough. Yep. If you just did hit the AMPK, you're going to plateau very quickly. Mm -hmm. You combine the two in just that right mix, and that's where you really start seeing the biggest gains. Yep. And once again, so you know, again, we're talking about our bias. You know, we're big fans of the polarized approach. What is the polarized approach? 80% low intensity, hitting that calcium concentration pathway, combined with doing some high intensity work, really hitting that AMPK pathway and getting that additive effect. Mm-hmm. So how does this lead to saying that the the work is actually, the prescription is quite simple? There's a lot of different ways to really hit that AMPK pathway. Sure. And it doesn't need to be overly complex. It just needs to be executed right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be overly complex how you hit that calcium pathway. It's just lots of time at the bike, low intensity. Sure. And then you are hitting that additive effect.
0: Yeah, I think this follows logic. If you just come off of the winter and you've taken a break and you just start riding and you're riding long, slow rides, you gain fitness. If you just went out and twice a week did super hard rides, you'd gain fitness. But we're talking about putting all the puzzle pieces together and really optimizing your training and, and getting to the next level, so to speak. Right.
2: We've talked with my old coach, Hushang Mary, past Canadian national team coach, several times now. Of course, I already knew his opinion on this, but I asked Hushang what he felt about complex interval prescriptions. It seems like workouts are getting quite complex. They have these whole a minute of this, then 20 seconds of that, and then 30 seconds of this, and then two minutes of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your feeling about this? Does interval work need to be that complicated? Or, I mean, do you get greater gains having really complex workouts like that? Or do you think they should be kept simple?
5: Straight answer. Training should be kept simple. Training is complex, but that complexity is coaching for coaches, not for athletes. Training has to be presented to the athletes as simple as possible. I am not fan at all doing mixed intervals. Your intervals have to aim on certain goals. What are you developing? What is the goal? Is it speed? Is it anaerobic? Is it speed strength? Whatever it is, there is no need to mix this, make it complicated. To 10 seconds of it of one minute, a certain watts, drop it to certain watts. By end of the day, you are working on one energy system. And if somebody comes and says, "I'm gonna work on two energy systems," on this training session is you training wrong. That's not gonna happen. You know, some somebody asked me if you, is strength training helps you. I said, is "Strength training helps no matter what you do." even if you do it wrong, but if you do it correctly, you gain much faster in shorter period of time. So that's my feeling about those complicated intervals that's completely unnecessary. Let's
2: get back to the show where I tried to give an analogy explaining why prescriptions should be simple.
0: So give us an example that really helps us understand what you're talking about here
2: okay so yeah let's step back because i've now done my giant nerd bomb i was actually out for a ride uh, with an athlete who who came to boulder to to get tested Mm -hmm. he's actually one of the listeners of the show and really enjoyed having him here and we went out uh, he, he wanted me to to show him a bit of boulder take him out for a ride so we were out in the bike pass riding together and I was thinking about this at the time and thinking about the what we want to do with this episode and realized that my ride with him was this amazing analogy for what we're trying to communicate. Because I was getting extraordinarily frustrated. I was trying to ride side by side with him and I could not get him to ride side by side with me. Mm hmm. And Chris can tell you, Chris and I go out for a ride. We can ride on the bike paths. We can ride on the roads. And we're just side by side. And it, it seems very fluid. And we're, we're constantly, unless a car is
0: coming or something happens. Yeah. You pick up on cues. It's symbiotic. You move over when you need to. You don't want, right. you know, it's just, it's nat. it feels natural.
2: He wasn't getting that. And I admit I, I was not as patient as I should have been. And at some point, I just kind of went, you know, you can ride beside me. Mm-hmm. Because we're trying to talk and he's talking 10 feet behind me and then 10 feet in front of me and then 10 feet behind me. It's conversation impossible. Yeah. So I tried and he tried. He really did try to ride side by side with me, but he couldn't really do it. And what I realized is this is a great analogy because if you think of this in terms of training, the the exercise prescription here is incredibly simple. Go out, ride side by side. Yeah. But it's only when I'm riding with a very experienced riders, like some of the pros in Boulder are going out with Chris, that we're able to execute it. And when you think about it, there are so many little things. What happens when you see a kid on the path? What happens when somebody's coming out of the of way? What happens when you go around a corner? Yep. How do you deal with cars? How do you deal with, with rocks in the road? And what you realize is just to do that simple prescription of ride side by side, you are making constant, like several times a minute, little decisions figuring out. Absolutely what I need to do now to make sure we're side by side. There's even just figuring out what's the pace that we want. I noticed when you ride with somebody who's inexperienced, they're just going to sit there and half wheel you. Yeah. You can go faster and right. faster and faster. Yeah. And if you ask a pro, most, I've talked to a lot of pros who have said that's one of the most frustrating things in the world for them. And I was thinking about this ever since that experience with this athlete and realized that's one of the cues. If you If you're riding side by side with somebody and you want to speed it up, You go a little bit ahead of them.
0: And they they pick it up too.
2: They either pick it up to say, okay, that's fine. Or they don't and say that's their way of communicating. I don't want to go faster. Sure. And then you slow down and go back to their pace. And by doing that, you never say a word, but you find a pace that's right for both of you.
0: Yeah. This This is the thing about experience that comes into play here. You ask a pro... What they're thinking about, or what all the things that they're trying to process while doing this, they might not have thought about it. It's just second nature to them. It's it's learned through experience, and it just happens. Right,
2: and but you you have no idea how much in the last two weeks I've been thinking about all the things <laughs> that we do, derived side by side, right. and realizing this is incredibly complex.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like a lot of behaviors, a lot of things that we do. You do it enough, you don't think about yeah. it.
2: But the prescription there is simple, ride side by side. Mm-hmm. And it's remarkably hard to execute. Now imagine if Chris and I were going out, and let's say we had this third fictitious person who coached us, and said, what I want you to do is, I want you to ride side by side for 45 seconds, and then I want Chris to half wheel for 30 seconds. Then I want you to ride 10 feet apart for another minute. Then I want you to pick up the pace and ride side by side for 15. Just sure. Just you know, you you get the idea. This would be hopeless, mm-hmm. and you would not have a good ride. And the, the likelihood of executing this in any effective, beneficial way is is
0: even with great riders would be low. Right. Yep.
2: And this is this is the analogy. And when I think about interval work, so when I'm talking about the complexity of the physiology, I'm thinking about. In this analogy, that's all these little factors of the the kid coming the other way, the bends in the road and cars and rocks on the road and all that sort of stuff. You're dealing with a a remarkably complex milieu of things on, uh, on this path. The prescription is the ride side by side. That's like your exercise prescription. What is remarkably complex and where you should be focusing your energy is in the execution. And I don't think you can execute well. When you have too complex a prescription, Mm -hmm. my bias, there's going to be coaches out there that are cringing right now saying, no, I want my pyramids and ramp ups and 30 seconds of this and 20 seconds of that. And look, if it works for you, yeah, just my bias. Sure. But to give you an example, one of my favorite workouts that I give a lot of my athletes is just simple five by five minute intervals right at or just slightly below threshold. With one minute recoveries, mm-hmm. and when I get a a new athlete, it usually takes about a season before I can actually get them to execute it right. And that is a remarkably simple prescription. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking for a particular heart rate response. I'm looking for them to be consistent interval to interval where their their average wattage is the same. I'm looking for them to be steady. Putting all that together, and it's not I, the prescription I give them is not a just ride right at 310 watts. I I tell them here's what I want to see with your heart rate. Here's what I want to see with your power. Here's what I, the, the field that I want to see. Mm-hmm. And it takes them a year with me constantly giving feedback to learn how to effectively execute a remarkably simple prescription.
0: Mm -hmm. This makes me think of the third episode with Dr. Seiler and interval work where he talks about some of those complexities and some of the difficulty of execution because you're not a robot. So you need to go out and you have to understand the pacing that's going to bring you to the specified heart rate at the end of the interval. And the first one's going to be a little bit lower. And then the subsequent ones, you need to, to ramp it up and then you'll sit and plateau at 91 to 93% of max heart rate or whatever that figure is. And of course, you could have gone out too hard. And if, if you're seeing that you're not able to sustain a particular level in a particular, in, an, in one of the repetitions, then maybe you need to, to stop or, or back off. So there's a lot of nuance in there. And, and again, it comes back to that experience thing. There's a, there's a feeling component here. There's a understanding of the numbers that may have been presented to you by your coach that you have to understand. So yeah, that's, that gets into some of the complexity and, and that episode again with Dr. Seiler, a great one to listen to, to understand a little bit more about the, uh, the execution and the difficulty of executing what we're talking about.
2: We did a whole episode, episode number 75 with Dr. Steven Seiler talking about intervals and why the prescription should be simple. So it's hard to pick a clip. Instead, here's a couple of his key messages. So if you tell somebody to go and do intervals at 88% of max heart rate, it's going to be different things for different people. What I'm kind of getting at here is trying to just find a simple number and say, do your interval work at this number, and, and that's going to have this particular training adaptation is actually a much harder thing to
6: do than you'd think. Oh yeah, I agree. And and, and that's kind of why our research has moved in the direction of is just to give athletes a basic prescription and then let them solve the prescription or, or kinda I've I've even in papers described it as, as an equation. It's like giving someone an equation and say, All right, solve for X and X in this case just becomes your average power for that interval session you solve the equation. I say, I want you to do four times eight minutes with two minute recovery. I want you to have the highest average power for the workout that you're able to maintain, a kind of a training max. So that's, that's, I've given them an equation and now they solve it. So that has kind of become our way of doing this in the laboratory and I think it works out pretty well because if we give them the prescription, then yeah, then we don't have to, we're not really telling them, I want you to be at 91% of heart rate, or I want you to be at four millimolar lactate. We're just saying solve the equation. But then what we find is that they tend to fall into uh, some kind of typical ranges for heart rate, for blood lactate, for perceived exertion and so forth.
0: This might take us a little off track, but Is there anything to replace experience to help athletes understand the feeling that you have when you're on the edge should go, you know, like you were saying, flex a little above or flex or bring it back down? Is there anything that replaces experience? No, I think uh,
6: at least some experience. You know, what what I I I hope we can do with these, these messages is that we can help people to get be on the right track with just the prescription itself and some basics but then within that prescription i think they need to do it that first time and maybe the second time and start to get a feeling for what is what's four times eight feel like and what do i where do i need to start what's the initial power and initial feeling and then and then guide you know go from there it's really important for me to say there's nothing magical about any of these. And, and I'm not trying to sell one. Some would say, well, Steven sells the four times eight. That's his, that's the Siler intervals or whatever. No, four times eight was one of the models we've used. And it turned out seemed to result in good adaptation, but it maybe could have been a seven times six or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm saying it, we think it's more to do with the total duration that we're prescribing that that actually is a constraining factor that help that we can use as, as coaches or you know to prescribe and help our athlete be where we want them to be and, and then i need to back up now because we get so focused on the the individual interval session that we forget the forest here. We get so focused on the tree that we forget the forest. And the forest is this. Let's let's say you train five times a week on average, day, week in, week out. So that's about 250 sessions per year, if my math is right, plus minus. And let's say you do an 80-20 model where you say, yep, 20% of my sessions are going to be seriously hard. All right, then that's around 50 hit sessions each year. And then you may end up doing a few more than that, but a minimum, typical re, uh, listeners are doing 50 to 100 hard sessions per season or per year as part of their training, right? So what we, we have to think about is when we're prescribing this, we're trying to prescribe a, a, an interval training prescription base that gives us the signals that we need over time over these hundred sessions that they may be without stressing more than necessary. So I always get back to this issue is is I want to create a signal. I've got to live with some stress. Yes, we're going to stress the system big time, but we don't need to stress the system more than necessary. Then it becomes unsustainable. This is about the big philosophy. This is the big picture. And, and sometimes we forget this because we get so focused on the individual details of the workout that maybe are not as important as we think. And we forget the big issue, which is, hey, I need to make sure that these 100 hard workouts I do in a year have some uh, – there's a plan here and that there's a sustainability built into them so that I'm, pro- I'm progressing.
2: Let's get back to the show. Right. And just to go a little deeper down that rabbit hole that, that you're talking about, I, I think that, that was a great observation. Talking about those five-by-five-minute intervals, um, one of the reasons I love those is, remember we, were, we earlier in the episode talked about training just sub-threshold is great for improving lactate clearance. So when I want to improve that side of, the, of an athlete's system, this is one of the intervals I give. When I have a new athlete, they're always just tell me what power to do it at, and that's the problem. One day two hundred and ninety watts might be right. another day two ninety watts might be too high another mm-hmm. time it might be too low and I'll actually put this clip in, but we had that episode where we talked with Sep Koos about his training and he says he goes out he'll he he has a target power for a workout, but he'll see how the first interval feels and then he adjusts mm-hmm. He says yep. some days power needs to be lower some days the power needs to be higher realizing that. 290 watts might be the right one time, but it's not right the next time. If you just go out and blindly do every interval at 290, you're not as optimally hitting what you're trying to hit.
0: Yep. And, and Dr. Seiler mentioned the, you know, some days you might only be able to do three, right? Some days you might be able to do five. So there's, there's not only the, the watts themselves, but the number of repetitions where you have that variability there. And you, you can play with that to, to, to customize the workout on that day. And based on your sensations and the numbers.
2: Sepp Kuz, 2018's winner of the Tour of Utah, has grown up with power and relies on it heavily. He talked with us about how he uses it and really got into the complexity of the execution. He told us he starts with a simple target zone or intensity, but then there's a lot of on-the-road decisions
7: along the way. Uh, for me, I it's usually just by by power only. Um, I've never done done heart rate. Um, but, yeah, I usually set myself up with, with numbers that are pretty pretty doable really um never never really reaching for a for a number i mean you know some days will be harder than others but yeah the way i do the intervals i go into them knowing yeah this is a a number or or a perceived exertion that that is not not easy but something that's attainable and repeatable day to day or interval to interval so yeah, it's it's hard to describe it, but I'd say at at the end of the day, I never feel like, oh, that was a, a ten out of ten just awful, awful day hard. At the end of the day, it's like, oh, that was maybe a maybe an eight out of ten difficulty, but I could do it again tomorrow. So I'd say that's my my general feeling. Right. Yeah. So
2: if you you said you're you're gonna look at the power, let's say you do in intervals and you say, I'm gonna be doing these intervals at four hundred watts. Mm-hmm. Do you consider how you feel at all? I mean, if you go out and one day they're killing you, another day they feel easy. Mm-hmm. Do you say, "I'm going to ignore how that how that feels and I'm going to stick with the 400 watts," or do you um listen to how you feel and say, "Maybe today I need to back down or today I can step it up a
7: little." Yeah, I think usually if it takes me about yeah, intervals, two intervals to truly feel how how I'll feel that that day or that that session or whatever, so yeah, definitely. If I feel like crap, I think, okay, well, what did I do? What was the what does the training looks like before? What what have I been eating? Um, and then you know, I'll make a decision. Maybe I just shouldn't be doing the interval at all if I feel that awful. Or yeah, maybe I should push through. Maybe at a lower lower power and just make that that new number the new uh, you know standard for for just that day. But yeah, it's it's always a tough call because you always want to be. At least for me, I always want to be at the the top of what I I can do. But another component is thinking thinking big picture. The lift for later in the week or for you know the next week's training. What what you need to what you need to do save yourself or
2: no? What about I I don't know what type of intervals you do, but what about uh, shorter like VO2 max intervals or so something yeah. that kind of too yeah.
7: So in that's a range. that's what I was gonna also mention. So for a VO2 for example, that's just yeah i'd never feel good during those and those are pretty much i feel pretty much all out to truly get the vo2 effect um so so that is also just based on um yeah what i what i perceive the effort to be and then also what what kind of number i i know i should be at but they never feel like they feel completely different from a threshold effort to me because it's 5 minutes Full gas, basically, and then recovering. So.
2: so fair enough. So you said it feels different. How do they feel different?
7: <clears throat> yeah, I guess a threshold, for example, feels feels controlled, repeatable. You have more, I guess, mental mental clarity for for your technique and your your shifting and um, looking up the road. So I think those are those are markers for me that I say, okay, I'm in I'm in a good good place right now. Um, this is a good, good pace or a good power. Um, and then for a, for a VO2 effort, for example, which you're, you're kind of reaching for, you know, those, those components, like your, your cadence, your gear choice, your technique, that all starts to, to fade a bit as that effort gets harder. Um, but then again, that, that goes to show what your, what zones you're most comfortable in. So if you're, you know, if you've been training that, let's say that VO2 number for a while, you're going to be much more comfortable in it and you're going to be able to execute all these, I guess, techniques. And then if you're, you know, not comfortable in that zone, you're going to start to to fade a bit technique wise, which I think a lot of people overlook.
2: Fair enough. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing.
7: What? Lo- lo- missing your... the.
2: Losing a bit of the technique in those intervals. I
7: mean, ideally you'd have full control in every, every zone, you know, and, um, yeah, I'd say for me, if, if I'm training one, not one zone, but one, I guess, type of effort for, for an extended period of time, I, I feel more in control and I feel, okay, I can, you know, play around a bit more in this zone. But if it's like, oh, this is the first time I've done a threshold workout in a week, It feels very foreign and and those things like like your respiration rate or your, you know, you're sitting, standing, all those things start to feel a bit more like out of control, I guess, or something that you're chasing a bit rather than firmly in control of. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people
0: optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life, an improved strap and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train.
2: So this is where the complexity of the milieu comes into affecting the execution. I don't think you can effectively execute just saying, I'm going to hit a, a, a target wattage. I think you have to look at the wattage. You have to use it. I give my athletes a, a target wattage range but it's going to vary day to day. I also talked about heart rate, but sometimes they might be dehydrated. That's going to raise heart rate. Sometimes it might be a little fatigue. That's going to lower heart rate. They need to know about those effects and And uh, I do those intervals all the time myself. Sometimes I do them and I can't break 165 beats per minute. Other times I do them and I'm already at 170 the, the first interval, mm-hmm. but I know that the, it's uh, I've learned the feel and ultimately feel is really critical. Yep. I know what they should feel like, and just go. Yeah, today my heart rate's a little low. Then I ask myself the question: Does that mean I'm too fatigued, and I shouldn't do them, or is that due to something else? And these are. This goes back to that when you're riding side by side, you just have this natural instinct of. Mm-hmm. Here's what I do in this situation. Here's what I do in that situation. And when I do these intervals, I'm not just blindly sitting there doing a wattage. I'm looking at my heart rate. I'm looking at my power. I'm looking at feel. I'm looking at what's been going on this week. How was my sleep last week? And all these different factors to finally say. Here's about the right intensity for these intervals or no, I'm not going to do these intervals today or I'm just going to do three or hell, I'm feeling great. I'm going to do six. Yep. That's the complexity that's in the execution. And again, my strong bias is if you have this remarkably complex exercise prescription and every time you go out to do intervals, you're doing a different exercise prescription. You don't have that wherewithal to be able to say, is this right? Is this wrong? Yep. I personally only have five, six types of intervals that I, that I go to because I've learned them really well, and I know what they should feel like.
0: Yep. Th- no, this this makes me think of, and you might you might uh, disagree with me here, but at one point we spoke with Evan Huffman, and he described one of his favorite workouts, and it was, I would say, on the slightly complex side. It was these over over unders. You know, there was so so many minutes at a certain percentage, and and. Then you would go over it, then you drop back down and then you do other sets and stuff like that. And I felt like, you know, the, those were kept things interesting, but I felt like you had to think too much right. while you were doing them and, and you could get confused or you could get off and then you'd get kind of lost in, in that. It's, if you did it enough, it'd probably be second nature, right? But we're talking here about doing intervals and accumulating quality time, right? If you can just if it's like five by five or four by eight, it's like, that's so easy to wrap your head around. And then you can focus on all of those other things that makes the execution optimal, right? But right. if you're worried about like, I got to go 20% over this, and then I got to drop 10% and under it. and, this and, for and 20 gotta,
2: seconds, and then that for it, 10 seconds, and then
0: it, this for 30 seconds, and then that for a minute, exactly. It, it's just like you get lost in that right. stuff.
2: So, you know, personally, like I said, I, I have just a few go to. So I have my, my threshold work. I do five by fives, four by eight. Sometimes I'll, I'll do the three by sixteens and they're all very simple. And I know exactly how they should feel. I know exactly what I'm looking for. And it took me years to learn mm-hmm. how to really execute them right, even though they're remarkably simple prescriptions. Yep. For my high intensity, I have a sprint workout and I love uh, Tabata style workouts. I do 20, 10s and I do 15, 15s. And again, I've done them enough. I know exactly how to do Why do you, do you even
0: bother doing them, Trevor? You're so bad at sprinting.
2: Every once in a while I just want to <laughs> pretend. I want to see myself add- actually break a thousand watts and go, Because it's wow. additive. Yes, because it's additive. You, additive. you need that additive. You need that, you know, everybody needs to do that work that really hits that AMPK pathway. And I went out and did my 2010s last night and they absolutely sucked. It was my first time doing them this year and uh, I blew up spectacularly mm-hmm. and went great workout for me right now because that system isn't isn't fully
0: there. That's an interesting point, honestly. Like you're not a sprinter, but you still do what would most people would consider like a quote sprint workout because of the effects that it has on your adaptation as right. an athlete. So to stress that point, the things that you do aren't necessarily – key to your qualities as a racer or your, your interest as a racer, but you might end up doing things that are a little outside of yeah. your wheelhouse because they affect your physiology and improve you.
2: So, yeah. And I think that actually, leads. I was going to use another example I was going to talk about in a minute, but maybe there's a good place to talk about it. Um, of this, again, the the prescription does not need to be complex, but the execution is critical. So I've been doing Green Mountain stage race for, for many years Mm-hmm and I've started using it. I, I do my mad scientist stuff and myself to both help me be a better coach. And, and so we can talk about these things on Fast Talk. So I have experimented with my build to Green Mountain. I had one year where I did nothing but sprint intervals leading up to it. Wow. I had a, a another, well, it wasn't like I was doing every day, but my high yeah. intensity work was right. sprint gotcha. workouts gotcha. twice a week. I had other times where I just did threshold hill repeats, almost nothing above that. And I can tell you each of those times that I got to the line, I was still the same rider.
4: Mm, mm -hmm.
2: I was still that diesel that can go good, hard, steady pace. But when you get to the sprint, I'm not there. When I did the sprint workout, I maybe had a slightly better jump. But it did not transform me as a rider. I was still basically (laughs) the same guy. And when I look back on it, how well I did in the race had nothing to do with what was my mix of complex intervals. Really, almost anything was going to kind of get me there. As long as I was doing some big volume and some sort of high intensity, it was going to get me to somewhat where I need to be for the race. Mm -hmm. What affected my performance was looking back and saying, how well did I execute? Mm -hmm. Sure, Was I under training? Was I over training? When I was doing the high intensity stuff, was it really hurting myself or was I kind of giving it the the ninety-five percent effort and then yeah, going home? Right. Those are the things I could point out. know, I looked at one year where I did horrible at Green Mountain, I looked back at my interval work and when I was fun this in every day.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Those were the things that showed up in the race. Right. But I I will I have no evidence that boy, I did this one interval workout, that was the magic bullet, and all of a sudden I was crushing the race.
0: Yeah. Okay, so with all that being said, we've got the complexity of the physiology, we've got the hopefully the simplicity of the prescription, and then we've talked about the the difficulty of that execution. What does this all mean? There's there's three big things that we want to focus on now in terms of the meaning of this episode.
2: So I think the first one is going right back to the beginning of this podcast, looking at that giant ugly mess of a physiological milieu and saying the the first thing you really need to do is figure out what parts of that milieu you want to focus on. And this is where, I you know, uh, it was so great to have Sebastian Weber on the show. And we got some feedback from people that really struggled with this because he was the one that came on board and said, sometimes working the right part of that milieu to be, let's say, a time trialer is going to hurt other sides of your fitness and vice versa. Mm Mm-hmm. So the example he gave is if you want to be a top-level time trialer, you're going to hurt your sprint. Sure. And if you want to be a great sprinter, you're, you're not going to win the World Time Trial Championships. Right. And that's because in this giant, ugly mess, the particular parts of the milieu that you want to hit actually can hurt assets you need for the other. So know what parts you really want to target. That's going to determine the, the sort of work that you want to do. And again, going with the we'll go with the time trialer example, he gave a lot of sub threshold work at low cadence, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is then you're really hitting that lactate clearance. Mm-hmm. Also, when you're doing low cadence, you're recruiting more of those two A fibers, and you're training them to work aerobically. And the problem is, if you train them to work aerobically, they're not going to be good for sprinting. Yep. So you're going to lose some of that top end jump. You know, that's just an example, but the really important message here is targeting the right parts of the milieu is a lot more than just saying, I need to train in this particular zone or at this particular wattage. Mm -hmm. And I I loved when we had Dr. Coggin and Hunter Allen and uh, Stephen McGregor on the show. They talked a bit about this. First of all, they pointed out zones overlap.
0: Mm -hmm. They're They're levels, not zones.
2: They're levels. So (laughs) their levels overlap. And understand that you have a, a threshold level, but it doesn't mean that you aren't training other systems when you're at that level. It also doesn't mean that you are only training your threshold when you're at threshold level. Right, right. You, you have to think of it as more complex than that. Yep. Pretty much, unless you are absolute sprint or noodling at 90 watts, you, you're going to get some improvements in that, that threshold fitness in, 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 in most of those levels. It's just where do you optimally target? But it's beyond just zones. It's beyond just intensity. There's cadence. There's length. There's recovery. There's a whole bunch of other factors that make the execution remarkably complex. But the prescription doesn't need to be complex. We were lucky enough to talk with Dr. Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen about training zones. They invented possibly the most common zone model in existence. But as you see, they believe our physiology is more of a continuum. And these training zones are really more of a standardization or a communication tool. And there's nothing really magical about each zone. In fact, they even hate the term zones.
8: Now, if you're dealing with one athlete or if you're dealing with six athletes, yes, I could sit there and tell athlete A, go out today and hold between 210 and 240 watts for six hours, and I could tell athlete B, you do 270 to, you know, 325 or whatever. But if you're dealing with more than six athletes, you need some systematic approach in order to aid in communication to standardize things. And that's really what this is all about. I mean, Hunter used the word clarity. It's a, it's a system to standardize communication. Uh, with the recognition, of course, that physiological responses occur on a continuum, physiological adaptations are a result of that continuum. Nonetheless, you know, humans have difficulty dealing with shades of gray, so we paint it as a bit more black and white, and we say "Yeah, uh, there are seven training levels uh, because it's a way of aiding in communication, especially with dealing with large numbers of individuals. But anyone who thinks that there's magic in training at a particular intensity uh, you know, just doesn't understand. Well, first, they don't understand how the body responds to exercise, but they also don't understand what uh, you know Hunter and I and then what Thieve joined in have been trying to educate people are about for the past two decades. Again, I come back to, they're called levels and not zones for a reason. They've always been called levels, <laughs> and I've I've railed, I've railed against this. You know, if you're not as uh, been around as long as I have, you may not remember the era in which people were discouraged from going too hard in the off season because they will you know blow up their capillaries. Hmm. And you go out and ride. <laughs> you go, yeah, snicker, snicker. I hear you, Steve. And you go out and ride with your friends. <laughs> They'd be adamant. It's like, no, I have to, you know, get off my bike and walk up this hill because I'll blow up my capillaries. Uh, You know, that's ridiculous. That's not how people ride bikes in the real world. So if you overly constrain somebody's power output because of the way you're prescribing training, all you're doing is making the training less specific. Go back to the original system that I put out there back in 2001. Now, um, it refers to the average power either for the Uh, interval, if you talk about interval type work, or it refers to the average power for the entire workout, if you were talking about, you know, just a steady state endurance ride, or if it's something like a tempo session, well, you know, you warm up and you cool down, but you focus on what was the average power over the hour and a half in the middle. Uh, But that doesn't mean that power remains within that range at all times. In fact, you know, the exact opposite is what you really should be aiming for, because we don't go out in time trial everywhere, uh, at least not in mass races. I was going to say, I'd like to circle back to the question you asked originally and well, you know, what represents a good system. Uh, I'll presage another question I know that you wanted to address, and that is what you use as your anchor point. So I would up front say it makes perfect sense from a physiological perspective that your anchor point has to be your metabolic fitness. But with that said, one of the issues that I had to take into consideration with the original levels was, you know, what is the right number? Recognizing that it's all shades of gray and that subdividing things into ranges or regions or zones or levels or whatever you want to call them uh, is simply a mental convenience. Well, how far do you go? If you set up 15 different levels, that better reflects the continuum, but it's rather unwieldy. on the other hand, if you have a three zone system and you're an advocate of polarized training, well, uh, if you think you're never gonna train in zone two and that everything should be you know, 65% of VO2 max and below or really hard, well then three zones might be sufficient because <clears throat> it serves the needs of your, I'll call it bias, as to how people should train. I was trying to develop something that was flexible enough that it could be used by any coach, regardless of their philosophy about how people should train. I was trying to be agnostic with respect to training, uh, philosophy and also trying to think about, well, how complex can it be? How simple should it be? And ultimately I decided seven was the magic number. It's a prime (laughs) number by the way. Uh, Uh, I could have been right, I could have been wrong, but that's what I settled on because it seemed to me that that was the minimum number that were that was needed to really capture the way people actually do train and that you could then classify various workouts and they would all, all or almost all fall
2: into one of these
8: seven uh, levels.
2: Let's get back to the show and quickly talk about another approach, race-specific training.
0: So Trevor, you've been talking a lot about this physiological milieu going on. What about specificity? Where does that come into play?
2: Yeah, we've certainly had some people come on the show have really talked about your training needs to be very specific to your event. I'm a little more in the camp of, of train the engine, build a big engine, and then let the engine figure out how to handle the race. But I do think there is a, a place for specificity. And I, I will say, if you're looking at that physiological milieu and, and feeling overwhelmed and Trying to figure out what parts of it do I want to hit? Well, an easy way to answer that is to look at what's my target race this year. My target race has a five-minute climb that's going to be selective. So I'm going to focus on doing five-minute climb work because I know that's going to hit the same parts of the milieu that I need for my target race. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, specificity can help you pick exactly what you want to target, Mm -hmm. which can be beneficial.
0: Well, that leads us right to your, your second point, which we've, we've talked about right. already, but let's get really to the point. Keep the prescription simple, focus on execution. And you gave your example of how, how you changed things for green mountain stage race. And, and you came at it from many different directions and ended up virtually Pretty in the same, place. the same
2: place. But yeah. my fitness, I could really look back and say, when did I execute the plan? Well, I had better fitness. When yep. I executed the plan. Not so well. Yep. Fitness wasn't as good. So again, this is a bit of an oversimplification of, of the science, but remember those four pathways that promote PGC-1-alpha, particularly the, that calcium release and the AMPK pathway. You want to just really focus on optimally hitting both of those in, in a good mix. And hitting that AMPK pathway, as we said before, that is just really depleting that, that anaerobic energy storage. Hitting that calcium pathway, it's just getting that volume, getting that time on the bike. The other thing that I'm going to say with this is because execution is so important. And again, my bias, I don't think it's beneficial to do a different workout every single time. Sure, I am a big fan of pick a workout that's going to target what you want to target. Really focus on the execution and do it for four to six weeks, especially because that's first time you do it. It's probably going to take you four to six weeks to figure out how to execute it. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that, that repetition in succession is really going to help you dial in things, learn, um, how, how, how to execute in a better way. It's kind of like when we record a lot of podcasts in a given time, we, by the eighth episode in a given week. We're like, man, we're really good at this. Right. And then we'll take a break and we'll come back and we're like, God, boy, we, we suck. suck. <laughs> so.
2: What's oh, actually going on is by the eighth episode, we're so tired, we're diluting ourselves into thinking that's, we're good. That's
0: probably more like And then it. we
2: come back with a fresh mind and go, boy, we're awful.
0: <laughs> so we're our apologies, Um, we're completely inconsistent in how we record. So if there are any duds out there, we, we you know, sincerest apologies. Yeah.
2: But going back, we've interviewed a lot of pros, and many of those pros actually have very simple workouts. But when they talk about the complexity of their workout, they're talking about the execution. They're talking about those second-by-second decisions that actually somewhat come naturally uh, because they are so experienced. But they get that an overly complex prescription doesn't allow them to, to get that feel, doesn't allow them to make those decisions. And they also, most of them that we've talked to, use a mix of heart rate, power, and RPE. I can tell you personally, I've been training for so many years. I have not calculated my training zones or levels or whatever you want to call them. I haven't calculated them in years because I know exactly what every single workout I do, I know exactly what it should feel
0: like. Mm-hmm. I don't use anything anymore. I, guess I I, I do have feelings, Trevor. I use them sometimes. I <laughs> Sure, coach, I don't care about your feelings. <laughs> Keep those to yourself. I can't, you know, all that, that that field with the description and the notes, I put I put a lot of time into that. Remember that ad, ad would end with an insult, too? You know, you wanted that. You were craving that. Yes, that's true. That's true. Okay. Moving on. Sorry, Chris. I will be more attentive to your feelings <laughs> in the future. Thank you. I need that.
2: Okay. So now that uh, we did our little psychotherapy session, Let's get back to the topic on hand. Other things to factor into that execution and making sure the execution is really good is making sure are you ready for the intervals. That goes back to what we were talking about about the getting producing the right amount of ROS, but not too much. How do you know? Uh, there there's a bunch of feel factors. Um there there's tools. So we just talked about whoop yep that's going to help you it's going to give you some indicators so that's using heart rate variability which does show recovery levels Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it is feel one of the things i look for with my athletes if they go out to execute the intervals and they can't hit the wattage turn around and go home yeah i always give them a here's what you have to hit and you could be two intervals in if you aren't able to hit this anymore you're done yeah, and again, that's another argument for keeping the prescription simple because if you're all over the map, you don't know if you're hitting the interval, the wattage or not. If I go out and do five by five minute intervals, even though I don't give myself zones, I watch where my wattage is every time I do it. And if I did it one week at three thirty, and then a couple of days, you know, or if I'm consistently doing it three thirty, and then a couple of days later I get on the bike, I try to do it, the legs feel bad, I can barely break three hundred, I go. I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. I'm not recovered. And I pulled a plug.
0: I will also mention a previous episode that we did. We like to pitch those episodes so you can refer back to them. We did an episode entirely on recovery. And, and some of the, the cool things that we heard from, from specialists there was that some of these questionnaires that you do on a daily basis or regularly and frequently. Also give you a, a great sense of of how recovered you are, what condition you are, and they have to do with your mood. A lot of them, so that that was interesting to to learn that.
2: Yeah, so there's a, a scale called the Palms, which some athletes will do almost every day, and it actually is pretty good at showing where you're at mm-hmm. um, and, and whether you need recovery or whether you're 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 ready to be training. Yeah. And sometimes when my athletes, when I'm worried they're pushing burnout, I tell them to take the Palms. Yeah. One thing we hope you don't think we're saying is that power is useless. Not at all. It's a very powerful tool. But what we are saying is there's a lot more to it than just doggedly sitting in training zones. Here's a great past interview with Tom Skoinch with Trek Segafrito, who explains some of the ways he uses power and shows some of these subtle differences.
9: So, that also depends on the type of interval, just because the sustained efforts... The long ones that you keep on going forever it's very important to keep an eye on that number and not go over just because as soon as you go over your body turns to a different kind of intensity and builds lactic acid and you won't be able to sustain it whereas if you have shorter intervals which are like two minutes five minutes then it's not necessarily about the actual power number but it is in that regard. As soon as you go for too far down, it's not worth doing it. But sometimes it's the higher you go, the better. Where, but at the same time, not for me. I never. I, I'm. I'm almost never going flat out in training, just because I. Ha- I like to keep my race legs for the races, and uh, just doing those uh, intervals at a specific power number like saves your legs a little bit and doesn't let you go too far into the red. Like, if, you, if you, even if you're trying to do, like, five-minute intervals and you do the first one too hard, no, the last one is not going to be anywhere near as good, and you're just going to be... Well, it's not, it's not going to be worth doing the fifth one, right. or sixth one, or whatever.
2: Let's quickly go back to our interview with Ned Overend. We talked with him about how he executes his training. Notice that while he doesn't use numbers or complex intervals, he literally just uses climbs at different lengths, He really struggles in this interview to explain some of the complexity behind the execution.
3: What I'll do is uh, I'll have a loop planned. Generally, maybe I'll ride out the valley to uh, get into some climbs, and then there'll be a a series of rolling up and down climbs, which I will plan to go hard on. And and I know the segment's right on Strava, so uh, I'll pace myself for those certain segments to uh, to try and get a, a fast time on them. When I go out and do that, it, it's not set in stone because, uh, and it's really just kind of a feeling I have in my legs, I'll warm up, I'll start doing the segments. And if I can feel in my legs, like whether they're loading up with lactic acid, and Okay, that's probably the wrong term. Right? <laughs> Already, I've, I've uh, recently read that, that that's probably not the right description of it. But my legs will feel heavy, and I won't be able to uh, turn over the gear that I'm, I'm looking for. And I, I know the speeds and, and just the, the feeling my body has when, uh, when it's rested. Then I'll skip doing intervals, do a recovery ride, and uh, wait to do intervals on a day when I'm, when I'm better recovered.
2: Are there particular feels in your body that you say, okay, that's a danger sign or th- that's a red flag?
3: It, I'm trying to describe the, the fatigue that I feel when um, I'm trying to uh, do an effort and I'm not capable of it. And, and one thing I have to do is that sometimes your body has to, to wake up, right? So if you're just starting one effort and, and you don't, you're feeling fatigued, Sometimes you need more of an opener before you can get to the point, you know, where you can do a quality interval. And, uh, I guess I'm not describing exactly what that feeling is so well, but it's, it's just the, uh, it's the lack of power in my legs to, to accomplish the, uh, the effort. Obviously I'm struggling to describe that feeling.
0: I mean, I understand what you're trying to say. It is tricky to, to say. It's like this feeling of sluggishness or a feeling of just that lack of snap or power that you mentioned, um, in terms of what it actually feels like in your leg. Mm, um, I don't, yeah, it's, if you had a, a, it's like cutting the peak off of, a, if, if, if what if your optimal performance is the matterhorn the day when you go out there and you don't feel so great it's like somebody chopped the tip of the matterhorn off is that, <laughs> that's my that's my way of describing that that lack of yeah
3: it's it, it's a fatigue that i'm i'm feeling in my legs and i'm not going to call it necessarily a burning cuz it's almost cuz i don't get to the point where my legs are burning it's where i'm attempting to to uh put in an effort and you know, I feel that uh, like my respiration increases, right? I'm breathing harder and uh, and I can't actually get to that point where I can make my legs burn. But I'm feeling it as as kind of a general fatigue. So okay. I breathe harder, but I'm, I'm not getting that burning in my legs from from being able to tax uh, them strong enough, if you know what I mean.
2: So that begs a question when you're doing some sort of structured work. Like you're doing, let's say, threshold on some of the climbs. How do you pace yourself?
3: It's from knowing the segments and then basically feeling in my legs, not going too hard, you know, in, until I can know that the end of the segment is coming or pacing myself throughout the segment based on, on knowing uh, how far the segment is or roughly how long and then... Not going, I don't know, anaerobic is, is not the, necessarily the right term, but not using too much energy to, uh, where I know that I will, you know, end up being fatigued and having to slow down before the end of the segment. So really just, uh, it, it's basing it on the, the feel of my body, which I'm not really describing that well, but I know it well enough based on, and this, this is more of a fatigue I feel in my legs than actually, and actually in, as far as increased respiration right over the, the course of the segments. And the segments are, you know, anywhere from, you know, a minute to a half an hour. So it's kind of just pace learned over, you know, 20, 30 years of, of training.
2: So that's what I was going to ask is how you, you learn. So it sounds like you just have this innate sense of, um, okay, this is a 10-minute climb, and I know about how hard to go to, to last 10 minutes, or this is a 30-minute climb, I know about how hard to go for that. And that was going to be my question, is how did you learn what that intensity is? And is it just trial and error of years until you, you got a feel for it?
3: Yeah, I would say it's trial and error. Knowing, you know, the feel in my leg and, and the, the building up of fatigue as far as how long it can last over the specific climb. Right. Because, uh, you know, it could be an undulating climb and then, you know, there's a certain amount of recovery. So you can you can bury yourself a little harder if you know that the climb is going to flatten out, you will get a little bit of recovery. So it's specific to knowing the climb and not so much just based on time. Back to the show.
0: All right. Well, the third point that I know you want to make is a very critical one. And this is, again, having having worked with you as a as my coach, I know that it's not these specific sessions that you're you're obviously you want execution in a specific session session to be it is critical but you also want the athlete to have a a greater understanding of the context in which that session falls and we're talking here about blocks and perhaps several weeks of, of training and work that you do that um, lead to the additive effects, the adaptations that we're looking for. And that is a, a critical piece of this puzzle.
2: Right. So remember, again, going to that PGC-1 Alpha oh, pathway. Oh boy, we were not talking. again.
0: Yeah, no, we're,
2: <laughs> this is a PGC-1 Alpha <laughs> episode. Yes. That, that, that was, oh, I was so
0: excited when I realized that's what this episode is about. <laughs> really think you should get a tattoo of that on your – somewhere on your body where people can see it and be like, wow, is that – what is that? Should is I be that- like the triathletes who get the,
2: the Ironman <laughs> tattoo on their ankle? I'm going to one Alpha tattoo Absolutely. there. Absolutely. I
0: think that would be great. It would be such a conversation starter. No. Or conversation ender. That would maybe. make sure that nobody ever rode beside me in the <laughs> Peloton ever again. <laughs> maybe you should get a kit that just has PG1 C. PG, sorry, PGC one alpha. We'll
2: make the team. That's going to be the team name. Presented by what? Presented
0: by, presented by Ross. Ooh, I like it. That's our team. Presented by, Hormesis. (laughs) Okay. Again, let's move on to this critical third conclusion.
2: Please move on. So remember, there is an additive effect. You want to hit multiple pathways that all promote it. And then you're going to get greater training gains. That's that's the simplification of what we're talking about. And like I said, if you want the details, go read that great review by Larson. So no one workout is the magic bullet. That's what we're trying to get across. It's in the execution. And on top of just executing each workout correctly, there is the how does it all come together? Getting that right mix to get that additive effect. And again, this goes back to why we're such fans of, of the polarized approach because polarized approach really hits both that AMPK pathway and that calcium buildup pathway and theoretically has this big additive effect. So you need to look in terms of the week. And Chris can tell you when I coach him, I talk about the week. Mm-hmm. And I always say the, the week and what you're trying to accomplish in the week is more important than any particular workout. You go out to do that workout and the legs aren't there, you're not recovered, go home. We'll map out the week again to still accomplish the purpose of the week. But it's how that week comes together. And we've heard a lot of pros say this to us. How do you map it out? How do you put weeks together? Personally, I love the do your high intensity when you're fresh, then do your volume when the legs are a little more fatigued. So I like training the two, three day blocks. Mm-hmm. There's also the, the building over three weeks and then trying to have a recovery week. Yeah. These are the things that are, are really going to help improve you. But it's looking for that additive effect. It's looking at that balance of Ross and recovery, or Ross buildup and recovery. So you really need to look at how everything fits together. And that was when I was talking about Green Mountain. That's really where I saw I was arriving ready to race, or I wasn't driving ready to race. It's how well I executed the weeks. Yeah. And again, just my personal bias, but... I think when you look at the particular workouts the the execution doesn't need to be complex just find a good interval workout that you know you can execute well that's going to hit the right part of that physiological milieu that you want to hit hmm and then it's how these different workouts simple workouts all come together in the week that's where you find the magic
0: yeah I I, f- I feel like we talked with dr. Seiler about that where Mixing up the different types of intervals, you did actually. It wasn't statistically significant, perhaps, but they saw that the more consistent you were, the better the gains. So that
2: in, in his interval study, they had three groups. So when they were looking at periodization, they had one group that did four by fours, then four by eights. Each time was four, for four weeks. So they did the four by fours and then four by eights and then four by sixteens. Another group did four by sixteens and four by eights and four by fours. And a third group was every time you go to do your interval work, just pick one at pick random. One, yep. And they found very similar gains between the what was called the increasing and the decreasing groups. And while it wasn't statistically significant, but that's because they had low numbers is my guess. They saw slightly lower gains in the group that just mixed it up. Mm-hmm. And he even says in the study, it's because since they were always mixing it up, he didn't feel they were able to execute it. They well. didn't nail it. Right. Yep. Chris and I had a great talk with 2017 U.S. national champion Larry Warbus about numbers and training. Well, Larry talked with us about how to effectively use power and heart rate. What he said he learned over the years is that it has to fit into a broader picture. Otherwise, even if your individual sessions are going well, you may be off track.
10: The other week, I... uh, I sent a message to my trainer that I work with at IAM who is a really smart young German guy who now now he's a trainer at Giant. You know, some of his athletes had been riding really well. I knew that he coached uh, one girl and I said, hey, you know, I just want to say congratulations. I saw, you know, your, your athlete was doing really well and uh, he said, oh, thanks. Actually, you know, a lot of my athletes have been doing well and he said uh, he sort of like changed his philosophy a bit whereas before when he was working with us, he was saying, you know, he he took sort of more of a backseat approach and, you know, he'd give us the training and he'd look at our training and everything like that. But that was kind of it. And he said, now he's, I guess, a lot more holistic. So he's talking to his riders a lot more and, um, you know, he speaks with them all the time. And then, so he had one athlete who said, okay, I guess he wrote on whatever the software they were using for training. Like, Oh, I was, uh, you know, it was her recovery day and she said, oh, sorry, I had to go a little harder because I was on the bike path and all these people were in the way and I had to slow down and then I had to get back in time for my massage and, you know, like this, that, the other thing. And, you know, it was kind of like blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, he said he he read it and then he he called her and he said, look, like uh, uh, I just read your, you know, your comments and I want to ask you, does does that sound like recovery to you? And she was like, uh." No. And he's like, to me, that sounds like stress. So that's great you're getting massage. That's great you're going on a recovery ride. But if the massage and the recovery ride are making you more stressed and mentally fatigued than just doing nothing, he's like, I don't care if you ride your bike then. He said, the goal is recovery. So whatever it takes to recover mentally and physically, that's what you need to do. So he said, you know, if you have a recovery day, your goal is recovery not not the not the 1 hour spin the goal of the day is recovery and whatever that means to you is what you need to do and the same goes for a training day you know your goal on that day is to achieve your training but yeah and then i guess the thing is with the whole tss tsb ctl stuff that's more like my coach looks at that and i don't pay too close of attention but i'll definitely take a peek every now and then but i try not to get too caught up in it well, I think it's more listening to only the numbers and not listening to your body or your sensations. You know, uh, I, you'll hear like a lot of directors and stuff like that talk about sensations, sensations, sensations. But I think, I think it's really important to be sort of in touch with yourself. And I think if you're just focused too much on the numbers, then you can totally forget that like, maybe you just feel bad, you know, maybe, maybe you're, Maybe you're tired. Maybe, you know, there's all these external factors. Maybe you have, you know, a bunch of stress for some other reason in your life. And, uh, you know, that, that can add, like I was saying, a lot more fatigue than, uh, you know, than training peaks will show. So, so I guess, like, for example, when I was 923, you know, there was one, one season and year that, you know, all my numbers and everything were really good. But then I just couldn't explain why I wasn't riding well in some races until I sort of looked back and realized that like, you know, I had done like overseas travel, you know, did this big race, overseas travel, another big race, drove halfway across the country, drove halfway back across the country, drove back, you know, like flew halfway across the country, you know, and like all this travel and here and there and whatever. And it was like, I was just looking at the numbers, and I was looking at you know TSS, TSB, all those things, and it was like everything looks like I should be good, uh, but you know it wasn't all adding up. So I think it's more to be a slave to the numbers without acknowledging your personal sensations and those things. Uh, I think that that's the that's where you can make uh, errors. Um, I think if we were all computers, and you know we all did the exact same thing every day and, you know, recovered exactly perfectly, then, yeah, then you wouldn't need to look at anything other than the numbers. But, you know, we're all human. So we all do different things uh, and have ups and downs and more stressful times and less stressful times. So I think we just need to look at it, you know, more as a whole rather than just one or the other. Um, So, yeah. And I guess one other thing to throw in there, but, like, I think one of the most important things with the coach – an athlete sort of relationship is like the comments actually. Um, So like my coach really likes it. I, I just, sometimes I'll just write a book, you know, and I'll explain like my, how I felt on every single interval I do throughout the day. And then the general, how I felt on the day, or, you know, I'll say, oh, I slept poorly today, but I still felt great on the bike or like, you know, slept great, but for some reason I felt really bad on the bike, you know, things like that. And I guess that just gives a really good, view of everything.
2: Larry mentioned how a coach can help. Let's finish up with some thoughts from Chris on finding a coach to help with the right complexity.
0: So this probably sounds incredibly tough in some ways, what we've just thrown at you. There was a, that was a lot of information we just talked about from the science to the execution to the the, well, the prescription was, was totally easy, but you're right. That was a lot of stuff. Why would you add more complexity to it by creating a prescription that was, you know, all over the place and hard to remember and you had to write it out on a piece of tape on type it, put it on your top tube or your stem and then you get lost in it and shouldn't do that.
2: That is my bias. I agree a 100% with you.
0: This is one thing that's been on my mind throughout the episode. And that is, you know, we've been talking about a lot of this stuff. Perhaps it's overwhelming to you. But. A good coach should know, well, should know is a, is a strong phrasing, but a good coach will help you through this process. They know, they should know the physiology. And if you have questions about it, they should be able to explain it to you. They will understand the trifecta of feeling and heart rate and power and all those nuances of how to execute well certain intervals and they can guide you through that so that you can begin to nail those interval sessions faster. I'm not necessarily saying that everybody should go out and and hire a coach. Personally, I've worked with Trevor, but I don't always. It's for certain things where I will and other times, you know, my my preference is to not have a coach. But if you're really focused on getting better or just Sort of in that cliche way, tapping into your best self, squeezing out the last drop of, of performance from yourself, then a coach, a really good coach, and we've had an episode on what makes a good coach and what doesn't make a good coach. A really good coach should be able to facilitate all of this and make it less intimidating.
2: And I'm going to, again, throw my bias
0: in here, and this is
2: where I'm probably going to get rocks thrown through my window or death threats or whatever you want to call it.
0: (laughs) I Uh, I seriously hope not. This uh, is just a podcast. When
2: you think about the episode that we just recorded and and our bias, I'm going to tell you I don't think what makes a good coach is a coach that gives Mm -hmm. you a six-week training plan with all these remarkably complex exercise prescriptions. I do think there are some coaches out there to think that's what they're being paid for. And if they don't give you something remarkably complex, you're going to say, why am I hiring this coach? Mm-hmm. I think a good coach is actually going to give you something very simple. And then what they are going to work on with you is the execution. Yeah, The good coach is the one that's going to talk to you about the workout, look at your file and say, here's what I'm noticing in the execution. Who's going to look at it and say, you know what? You weren't ready for these today. You were fatigued. Here's why I know that. So you know for next time.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's probably something that maybe those unfamiliar with software like Training Peaks or some of these other analytical tools is not familiar with. The fact that these intervals we're talking about really have a signature. When you look at the data and and it's graphed out, you can tell what people are doing based on what they should be doing and how those two match up. So a good coach who's looked at literally hundreds of these files from tens, if not hundreds of athletes... We'll we'll be able to key in on some of those indicators that will say, yes, you did it right. No, you did it wrong. Here's where you need to improve. Here's where you need to change things.
2: The next thing I would say is whether you work with a coach or not, my suggestion is, again, try different types of intervals and build for yourself a repertoire of, I'd say, seven, eight different types of of interval workouts that, that you really like, that you respond well to. And learn how to execute them. And when you're trying one for the first time, you got to give it at least four weeks. I would probably say six to even eight weeks. Yeah. And learn the execution. But don't be going out and constantly doing new interval workouts, new interval workouts. Looking for that perfect interval workout that's going to make you suddenly the better cyclist than you've ever been. Mm -hmm. For some reason, what always comes to mind for me is when I was a kid, and again, I'm going to date myself, we had Mortal Kombat, (laughs) I remember remember going to the arcade and playing, or no, sorry, it was Street Fighter (laughs) 2. I remember going to the arcade to play Street Fighter 2, and there's this guy there who was absolutely amazing. And if you remember, there's six different buttons for different moves, like Mm -hmm. kicks and punches and all that sort of stuff. And this guy just looks at me when I line up to take him on and just goes, pick a button. And so I point to one of them, and he absolutely destroyed me in this game, only using the one move. And that's
0: he perfected it.
2: Right. Kind of the way I think about the, the, the training. It's not about having 50 different moves. It's about having a few moves, but being really good at executing them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you're going to win. So don't I, I see athletes a year after year after year trying a different workout every year looking for that perfect workout. My argument is you've probably already done a whole bunch that are the perfect workout. You just haven't perfected them. You Mm. haven't learned how to execute them right.
0: My guess is that a lot of listeners of Fast Talk are people that love science. They love a good experiment. They want to improve. They love cycling. So here's what I propose. For those that are longtime listeners, I'd like you to write to us and tell us if our advice that we've given you over the last couple of years is sound advice for you or not. But Here's the the real thing that I'd like to, to see. I want you to adopt what we've talked about here today. Try to put all of what we've discussed into practice and come back to us with case studies of whether it's worked for you or not. I know we're, at, we're going to be.
2: And Chris will be responding to all <laughs> yeah. of these.
0: No, 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 no. Trevor knows way more about it. So I just let, you know, I, I gift him the opportunity to respond to all of these emails from, from all of our listeners out there. No, I, you know, I just, I, I would encourage you to not bombard us with emails, of course, cause we don't, we, we have limited time, but I would like to hear how successful our advice is. Again, you're getting our bias on this, this show. Honestly, it probably doesn't work for everybody, right? But I would like to hear how it has, if it has, and how it hasn't, if it hasn't. And I think that would inform us going forward in terms of producing new episodes on different topics. Just inform us as people uh, interested in this type of sports science and training information. So, you know, again, don't don't bombard us, but give us give us uh, a few lines about what works and what doesn't.
4: OK, I
2: like it. Now, look, we, we always love hearing from listeners and, and I do apologize. I know I haven't replied to everybody. Sometimes I just like everybody. I get a little overwhelmed with work and, and get behind on the emails and just never get back there. But we always love to hear from you and we always try to reply. So so keep doing that. So hey, do, we, do we attempt one minute? with I, this? I
0: think so. You had five minutes earlier. You failed miserably at that. I'm going to give you one minute now to summarize the last hour and a half discussion we've just had. So let's see if you fail miserably at that as well. Ready, set, go.
2: So we talked about three things. We talked about exercise prescription. We talked about execution. We talked about physiology. And my point here is physiology is remarkably complex. It's not as simple as I'm in my threshold training zone, therefore I'm training my threshold. It's a lot more complex than that, and don't oversimplify the physiology. Execution is remarkably complex, and it's not as simple as I was told to do this at 300 watts, so I'm going to do this at 300 watts. You have to factor in feel and heart rate and all these other factors to really execute intervals right. With the complexity of those two things, keep the prescription simple. Because there is no magic prescription that's suddenly going to make you a miraculous rider. There, there are some good ones out there that have been proven beneficial. Like the, the whole reason the Tabatas became very popular is they showed they are fantastic at depleting the ATP, the anaerobic store, and really hitting that AMPK pathway. Long, slow distance is great at hitting that other pathway. So the, there certainly some workouts that are proven beneficial, but they're not overly complicated. So keep the
0: prescription simple. I think you've been thinking about this for a while, and I think you nailed it. You know, experience. Is this your way of
2: saying, I'm not going to do my one minute? (laughs) Well, you know, I
0: don't know what I can add to it, honestly. Again, that summary is kind of an analogy of what we're talking about. It's
2: fine to use your your one minute about how you kicked my butt at the panache ride today.
0: (laughs) It's all the running that I've been doing. That must be it. The it, fact know.
2: that I've been training my ass off on a bike and you haven't been riding a bike and you've been running, that's why you beat me on the bike.
0: See, all of the wonderful podcast episodes of fast talk that we've done, I've I don't always talk that much. It's because I'm listening. I'm absorbing all of this information. I go out and it's just within me. I, I don't I don't have to think too much about it, just putting into practice all of the words that you've spoken so eloquently over the years on Fast Talk. And you're coaching me without coaching me. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh.
2: You 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 know know what Chris's favorite workout is? It's going up a climb with me and dropping me and then finding a cliff that he can climb up just so I know it took him a long time to climb up that cliff because that's how far ahead of me he got and then he stands at the top of that cliff, taking pictures while laughing at me.
0: We haven't done that in a while. We need to do that again. So that is
2: your favorite workout yeah I'm it certainly
0: sure. is. it certainly is yeah there's the goal there's a there's a big carrot out in front of me get I gotta get a decent lead to climb up some precarious cliff with rock crumbling around me to to get that Instagram shot. It's all about the pick
2: there we go so there there is Chris's favorite simple exercise prescription, yep drop trevor drop trevor take a picture take a picture top of a cliff <laughs> repeat so do you have a one minute or are we going to leave it there you're on the clock chris
0: i think my my one minute is is going to be maybe quite redundant with what you've just said with all the complexities that you have and i'm talking not just what we talked about today physiology and and the the difficulties of execution but all the other stuff going on in your life just it's nice to have something that's Simple. And this goes back to yet another episode where we talked about athletes that are task oriented. I'm a task oriented athlete and it's really nice sometimes to have a very simple checklist of things to do for a ride. You have a purpose for every ride. Sometimes it's go out, ride for five hours. Other times if it's intervals, which is kind of more what we're, we're talking about here in terms of execution, it's four by eight minutes, and that's sort of my go-to if I'm if I'm doing intervals, and it's you do one, and you, like you said, you see how you respond. If you need to adjust, you adjust. If you don't, and you've got that feeling going, and you know how to do these things, you tick off another one. You recover, you tick off another one. It just feels good to have that sense of accomplishment as you go through it, and you keep it simple, and you go home, and you've got all the quality work you need that day. I, I think it just helps you not stress about
1: the things that are kind of in a way the most important. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalkatvellinews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Fast Talk is a joint production between VeloNews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Ned Overend, Hushang Amiri, Dr. Steven Seiler, Sepp Coos, Dr. Andy Coggin, Hunter Allen, Santa Claus... Wait, that's not... Nope, Tom Scoonge, Larry Warboss, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.